Good morning. Please take out your Bibles. Turn back to the Gospel of John. Back to John 3.16. This time we'll be looking further at the verses that follow it and help explain it. Let's look this morning at the whole of John 3.16 through verse 21, which will help us hopefully better understand this most misunderstood 316. Page 888, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you can find it there. John 316, we know, is without a doubt the most famous verse in the Bible. Today in our culture, there's a verse that is increasingly running a close second. Probably, arguably, that verse would be Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. It's maybe like the second most popular verse. If you've ever worked out at a Planet Fitness, and men, you should probably never work out at a Planet Fitness. It's kind of a lady gym. Um, But if you have, you'll have seen somewhere in the midst of all the purple and yellow giant letters on the wall that cannot be missed. Judgment-free zone. That's what it says in every Planet Fitness. Judgment-free zone. And if our current culture could somehow put up giant signs in purple and yellow, summarizing its core beliefs, one of those would be judgment-free zone. And so, we say and we think and we define much of our lives around the statement, well, you know, who are you to judge? One of, if not the, central tenets of our culture is the, the rejection of any and all authority outside of the self. Right? I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. My autonomous self has all authority. Therefore, nothing outside of that self can cast judgment on that self. Right? Self is the absolute. It's the only judge of self. Therefore, judgment frees him everywhere, always. Judgment has been judged. Don't miss the irony. But judgment has been judged to be one of the cardinal sins of our culture. And sometimes... It would even like to, our culture would like to point to Jesus for support for this position. It will say, look, even Jesus says, don't judge. Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not. Look, John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And so we could take the general misunderstanding of John three sixteen. You know, God just loves everybody who has ever lived so, so much. And then we take this misunderstanding of John 3.17, God didn't send Jesus to condemn, and we could start to feel pretty all right about ourselves and pretty all right about our world. Well, God loves it so much, and God didn't send Jesus to condemn it, so don't judge me. God didn't. Well, again, let's, let's see. Let's, let's actually get into the text and see what these verses are really saying. Is John 3.17 providing for us a judgment-free zone? The question, why did God send his son into the world? What did Jesus really come to do? Verse 16, God gave his son. Verse 17, God sent his son. Verse 19, the light has come into the world. Why? And what happened when this happened? Well, there are two main things that are being emphasized in our text that I want to draw out for us this morning. When I read this text over and over again, again, that's how you understand a text. It's just... Keep reading. That's how you understand John 3.16. Keep reading. And when I keep reading, I notice two words, each repeated four times in this section. Two words repeated four times. Believe, once in verse 16, 
And then three times in verse 18, we know that one, but then the other one is judge. Once in verse 17, if you're looking in the ESV, where you see condemn, it's just the Greek word judge, uh, krino, the same word as Matthew 7, 1, judge, not. Then you see it twice in verse 18, not condemned, condemned already. That's just not judged, judged already, same word. And then we see it translated as judge in its fourth use in verse 19. This is the judgment. There's the noun. It's all the same word. So four believes and four judges. Three of them are verbs and one's the noun. So why did God give and send his son? It has to then have something to do with belief and it has to have something to do with judgment. What does it mean to judge? Well, it simply means to decide. Originally, the word in the Greek meant to separate. Homer, in some of his poetry, uses this to refer to the separating of the wheat from the chaff. And then it came to metaphorically mean to, to separate out, to distinguish, to make a distinction. And so, if it turns out that the world is actually not a judgment-free zone, spoiler alert, it, it does, what then is the basis of God's distinction, of God's judgment? Well, we're going to see, and we know the answer, it's, it's belief, it's faith. And so actually, surprisingly, this passage that is treated always and only about the love of God, and let me be clear, it is about the love of God. We just have to understand what that love is and and what it means and what that love does. But this passage that is so loved as being about the all-celebrated love of God is just as much about the all-condemned judgment of God. And that should actually make perfect sense to us. It is actually that fact and the reality of God's judgment that makes God's saving giving of his son such wonderful and good news. So the love part, the amazing part, doesn't make any sense without the judgment part. And so we've got to understand this and how these things come together. We've got to understand how 17 through 21 explain verse 16 and how they actually magnify Verse 16. Three points to help us do that. Uh, God did not send his son to judge. Point number two. My wife asked me last night, she's like, did you, was there a typo in your sermon outline? But no, no, no. Point number two. God sent his son to judge. Yes, I'm being intentionally obnoxious. I will explain. We will get to that. We're going to understand what we mean by that. But I want you to see uh, the contrast here. God did not send his son to judge. All right, what does that mean? God did send his son to judge. How do those things go together? Hold on. We'll get there. We'll see. Point number three. The basis of God's judgment is belief. That's what we're going to do. Judge, judge, belief. Main words of the text. So let's read it first. Pay attention to those words. Pay attention to the repetition. Look and see what uh, John seems to be saying here before we walk through it. But this is the most important part. This is God's word. This is the creator God of the world, speaking to us, speaking into the world, and telling us about himself and what he has done. So pay attention. John three sixteen through 21. This is what God wants to say to you today. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Uh, Let's begin this time uh, by going to God, to our Lord, in a word of prayer. Father, please now help us. Father, protect us from uh, familiarity, uh, preventing us from hearing your word. I pray that you would protect us from distractions or other cares or current circumstances, from preventing us from hearing your word. We ask for your spirit now to help us, help me as I seek to preach your word. Father, I pray that my desire would be to explain your word clearly. Father, protect me um, from preaching what I want to preach. Father, help my words um, to be in accordance with your word. Um, Father, help my words to expose and explain your word. Father, help the preaching of your word, please. Father, help also the hearing of your word. I pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ, whom we uh, meet um, in this word. Father, show us what you are doing. Show us what you are revealing to us through these words. Show us the utter importance of Jesus Christ, uh, the utter reality and seriousness of your judgment and the absolute glory and goodness and beauty of your grace uh, given to your people in Jesus. So, Father, please help us in this time. Glorify your name. Edify your people. And we ask and we pray this only in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so first point simple. First point is clear. God sent his son not to judge. That's what verse 17 very clearly says. And we're starting with verse 17 because we looked at 16 in great detail last week, but we'll need to briefly review a little bit. For, verse 17 starts with for. Remember, so for, as we saw last week, is a conjunction. Conjunctions connect. So whatever God is doing in verse 17 is in some way connected to whatever God is doing in verse 16. 17 further explains 16. God did not send his son for judgment but salvation. That's verse 16 to save. As we saw in verse 16, God is saving his people. It is God loving by giving for eternal life. The result of God's love in John 3:16 is life. And so, just in case I wasn't clear enough last week, in case I beat around the bush a little too much, let's, let's be clear here for a second. Uh, we saw that a right understanding of the so in John 3.16 changes everything. What we have in this verse is not an expression of the magnitude of God's love, right? God loved the world so, so much, but the manner of God's love. God loved the world in this way. That's what the Greek word means. This is not about the affection of God's love, but the action of God's love. God acts, he seeks the good of the love, he does something. God loves in this way, he sends his son, and he sends his son for an express purpose. The end of the verse, eternal life. Right? So God gave to save. And then when we trace that back in the context, he gave his son, 3.16, to die, 3.14, to take away sin, 1.29. And since the wages of sin is death, when the thing that is death is taken away, life remains. Right? Life is the result. 
And so, if God gave his son, and he gave his son to die, and the result of that death is the taking away of sin, then for every single person that Jesus dies, the result will be life. That's just the logic. Which means, John 3.16 is not teaching that God sends Jesus to die for everyone who ever lives ever because he loves everyone so, so much. It's just not what this verse is about. This verse is specifically teaching the opposite of how we often teach it. God sends Jesus to die for his people so that they will live. This is what Jesus specifically says in John chapter 10. If you want to look there briefly, in John chapter 10, just seven chapters away, this is the good shepherd. Um, In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Well, what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, same thing. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, not everyone. He tells us specifically who he is dying for. His sheep, those in verse 29 who are given to him by the Father, a specific group of people given to him by the Father. Verse 27, those whom he knows, those who hear his voice, and those who follow him. Those are the sheep. Verse 28, it is to them that he gives eternal life and they will never perish. See how that's the same language as John 3.16, never perish have eternal life. John 10 is further explaining John 3:16. Be as clear as possible. Jesus did not come to die for the world in the sense of everyone who has ever lived, but specifically to die for his people from every nation of the world. God so loved the world in context spoken to this Jewish Pharisee, this teacher of Israel, meaning God does not just love Israel. He is not just sending his son to save a people just from Israel, but from the whole world. God loved that world in this way. He sent his son to die for it that it may live. Watch this rhetorical device. This sounds controversial. Um, If something sounds controversial, just quote Spurgeon. Because then everybody's like, oh, okay, well, Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this. Christ came into the world with the intention of saving a multitude which no man can number. And we believe that as a result of this, every person for whom he died must, beyond a shadow of a doubt, be cleansed from sin and stand washed in the blood before the Father's throne. This is wonderful news, church. Jesus did not die to make men savable. He died to save men and women. He actually did it. He accomplished it. It is finished. In chapter 10, Jesus makes the direct connection between laying down his life for the sheep and giving to them eternal life. That's the same connection that 314 to uh, John 316 to 314 to 129 is making. This is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of limited Atonement, which sounds so big and foreboding. It's not the most helpful of terms. Uh, Particular redemption is better. Jesus is actually accomplishing the total redemption of a particular people. And we prefer that term, particular redemption, because we do not believe that this glorious doctrine actually limits the atonement. We believe that the idea of Jesus dying for everyone who has ever lived actually limits the atonement. Why is that? Well, because that then means that there are a multitude of millions and billions of people for whom Jesus died that still perish and go to hell and do not have eternal life. And that makes 
no sense. What a weak and worthless atonement. It fails to save many. It fails to save most. It actually doesn't accomplish salvation at all. It would mean that there are millions upon millions in hell for whom Christ died to take away their sins and pay the penalty for their sins. It makes no sense. So I think it's actually just anti-gospel. Christ could not have died for everyone who ever lived because then everyone who ever lived would be saved. Because that's what Christ's death does. Christ's death accomplishes salvation. Christ's death atones. It pays. It redeems. It takes away sin. The result of his death is life. This is how scripture always speaks of what Christ has done. Don't start with the question, for whom did Christ die? Start with the question, what did Christ's death do? What did Christ's death accomplish? We don't have time to look at the myriad of verses we could. Romans 5.10, one of them. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, the death of Jesus actually accomplishes reconciliation. Revelation 5.9. This is John 3.16, by the way. Revelation 5.9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, the blood of Jesus actually ransomed. It actually pays the penalty. It actually buys us back. And it's a people from, from the nations, from the world. Matthew 121, we've been told this from the very beginning. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will not, it's not he will try to do it. It's not that he will do part of it. No, he will do it. He will save. He will accomplish that for which he was sent. He was sent to die. His death takes away sin. And over and over and over again, Scripture speaks of his death actually accomplishing salvation, redemption, ransom, reconciliation, and so on. Which just means that Jesus could not have died and done this for everyone. For, as Spurgeon says, if it were Christ's intention to save all men, how deplorably has he been disappointed. God is not and cannot be disappointed. God always accomplishes that which God intends. And he intends to save all for whom he sent his son. Chapter 9, paragraph 5 of the Second London Baptist Confession says, The Lord Jesus, oh, this is such good news. For a sinner like me, this is wonderful. The Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. That's just John 10. That's just what we read in John chapter 10. And this is what John 3, 16 and 17 means when it teaches that God did not send his son to condemn but to save. He obviously didn't send his son to condemn the very people he sent him to, he sent him to save. And we just cannot forget the context of this passage. We cannot forget who Jesus is speaking to. We cannot forget Nicodemus. Jesus is teaching the teacher of Israel. Jesus is correcting uh, this Hebrew, this Pharisee. He is teaching him. He is rebuking him. John Gill, a commentator, goes to great lengths to document some of the Jewish midrash writings commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures that were indicative of what many of the Jews probably believed at that time. For example, one of them had written, this is the king, Messiah, who is sharp and tender, 
sharp to the nations, tender to Israel. Another of them wrote, there is mercy for Israel, but judgment for the rest of the nations. So there's this expectation. This is Israel's Messiah. He's coming for Israel. He's going to save Israel. It's going to be judgment for everybody else. But now Messiah has come. Jesus has come and he corrects. Yes, I am the Messiah, but I have not come to judge the nations, but to save the nations. I have come to save a people out of not just Israel, yes, Israel, but also along with all of those nations, Nicodemus, that you probably think I have come to judge. My father did not send me into the world to condemn the world as you think, but I came to save the world, the nations. And how can this not then remind us of the book of Jonah? We just did Jonah. This is the same thing probably. Jonah, the man of God, the prophet of God, the Hebrew, God's word comes, go to Nineveh, no thanks, why not? Jonah tells us in chapter 4, because I know you, I know that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But not to them. No, please, not to Nineveh, not to the nations. Yeah, but God gets his way, Jonah goes, Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents, and the nation is saved. You see, God is saving the world, and Jonah's a little foreshadowing of this. God did not send Jesus to condemn the nations, but to save them. And that's what the world means. All of God's people called out of the nations, not from one people, but from all the peoples. That's the world that God has loved and saved. That's the world that God did not send Jesus to judge. So, first point, God did not send his son to judge. Because he sent his son to save. And he sent his son to save this specific people. Okay, so we see why context is important. If you just pull out verse 17, you could argue, look, no judgment. Judgment-free zone. But that's not what the text is saying at all. There's some important qualifying going on here. Plus, this one verse is not the whole story. God did not send his son to judge. Well, what about 527? The father has given the son authority to execute judgment. Same word. God did not send his son to judge. What about chapter 9, verse 39? 939. For, Jesus says this, for judgment, I came in to this world. For judgment, I came into this world. Chapter 1231, now is the judgment of the world. Three times, specifically. There's the judgment, and there's Jesus, and why he came. What's going on? Point number two. God sent his son to judge. Again, yes, I'm just trying to be intentionally provocative. Hopefully, for a purpose. I think it's in the text. We said it at the beginning. Two big words repeated in our text. Judge is one of them. And only one of the uses of the word is in the negative, the the not judge. Let's pick up in verse 18. Now look at verse 18. Look at it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Right? Stop there. Remember, those two condemns that you see is just the word uh, krino. It just means to judge. Uh, Whoever believes in him is not judged, but whoever does not believe is judged already. That's the NASB. It's probably, I think, a little bit better here. Not judged is judged already. So, 
I've argued that God did not send his son to condemn the world because 316, the world means all his people from all the nations that Jesus came to save. So, of course, he's not coming to judge those he came to save. But, say that I'm wrong. Say the world does mean everyone who has ever lived, ever. God loves everyone, ever, so much that he gave his only son, 16, 17. God did not send his son to everyone to condemn everyone, but in order that everyone might be saved through him. Again, just ignoring the fact that if that's the meaning, then God utterly failed. Um, he, he, he failed to save everyone, as verse 18 will make clear. Setting that aside, if that's normal, the general assumed uh, translation or assumption is, is, is correct, does it then follow that there's no judgment to worry about? God loves everybody so much, and he did not send his son to judge. So, judgment-free zone. Well, no, actually, even if that's the case... Not at all. Why, then, didn't God have to send his son into this world to condemn it? Verse 18 tells us. Because it was condemned already. Because it was judged already. You see, there is no judgment-free zone. Three years ago, July 23rd, 2018, a man named Eric Stagno, a town just north of Boston, he walked into a Planet Fitness he proceeded to take off all of his clothes and to begin doing yoga. The other patrons were obviously horrified and disturbed, called the police, and when the police arrived to take Stagno away in handcuffs, he said to them one thing. He said, I thought it was a judgment-free zone. And he was arrested. He thought wrong. Right? There is no such thing as a judgment-free zone. And a judge went on to prove that by judging him guilty for indecent exposure, and then giving him a four-month jail sentence. You see, Planet Fitness calls itself a judgment-free zone. It's not. Uh, our culture wants to call itself a judgment-free zone. Oh, but church, come on, the last year or two, we know that it's not. It's a judgment-free zone only as long as you have agreed with the prior assumptions and judgments of the culture. You go afoul of it, you disagree with the prevailing narrative, and you will find yourself quite quickly judged. In fact, our supposed judgment-free culture has ironically, but should have been expectedly, uh, developed into probably the quickest to judge ever. Right? So there's the profession of judgment-free zone, but the most prevalent of judgment in a culture that I can think of. There is no judgment-free zone. And there shouldn't be. And we all know that. The Planet Fitness patrons were right to immediately judge the actions of that man as wrong. It is right when our culture judges the actions of murderers and rapists and racists as wrong. A truly judgment-free zone would be hell on earth. And thus, it is right, then, for the creator God of the universe to judge. And again, let's not forget the main first verb dominating this whole passage Love, for God loved in this way. This judgment has something to do with that love. This judgment is related to that and is actually an expression of that same love. And so, yes, God very much did send his son into the world to judge. John 9, 39, again, for judgment I came into this world. 3.18, the world was condemned already. Why? Why is that? 
And we've got to try and understand this. In a culture that at least claims to be so judgment adverse, though it's not, it's almost impossible to hear and understand the goodness and the rightness of the judgment of God. The world is condemned already. Why? Well, we could go to a number of places. We could go to Romans 1.21, right? Everyone knows God. I'm not going there. Don't turn there yet. But they refuse to honor him as God uh, or give him thanks for everything that he has done, which is everything. So everyone knew the good creator God but rejected him. We're going to look at that in great detail in a couple of weeks in Bible study. So hold off on that. But again, I was racking my brain. I was trying to figure out how best to convey the wretchedness of what we have done in our sin and why the world deserves to be condemned and is condemned so that we could actually appreciate it. I was struggling to figure out how to do it in a unique way. And then Thursday night, Melissa and I read Isaiah 55, um, and it struck me. So this is why we just read this, and let's read it again. Go back to Isaiah 55. It struck me as we were reading it. Maybe this can explain a little bit better What's going on? And why the world is condemned already. Look at Isaiah 65, 55, sorry, page 615. It's just one of the best chapters. I won't read the whole thing again. Uh, we've got it in our head once. But I want you to notice, pay, be paying attention. Note what this text reveals to us about God. Note what kind of God this text reveals to us. Note how kind and compassionate he is. Note the wonderful offer that God holds out in these Verses. Let's start in verse 1. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Come. This is God speaking. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Skip to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And stop there. That's, that's who God is. Like, what an offer. There's no other offer like this. Come. Are you thirsty? Come. Don't have any money? It's free. Come. It's my gift. I love you. Don't waste yourself on that which will not satisfy you. I love you, so I want to give you that which will actually satisfy you. Here's the good food. Here's the food that delights. Incline. Listen. Come. So that you can live. Come, I will make an eternal, unending covenant, a a binding relationship of unending, perfect love. Seek me, call upon me, forsake wickedness, evil, bad things, and I'll have compassion on you. And I will abundantly and completely pardon or forgive or not judge. It's amazing. This is who God is. This is what God holds out and offers. Come. Here's what I want to give you. But do you know what most of Israel's answer to that is? No thanks. Go read more. Read chapter 57. Read chapter 59. Uh, Psalm, um, man, I didn't write it down. I think it's 81. Summarizes this. Oh, Israel, if you would but listen to me. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. To this. 
to Isaiah 55, the eternally generous and indescribably kind offer of that which satisfies, of that which is life, of that which is pardon and eternal covenant love. No thanks. And this is not just Israel's response. God is not just making this offer to Israel, but to all of us, to the nations. And the answer of most of us, no thanks. That's why the world is condemned already. And that's why it is right that the world is condemned already. This is what the world has done with and to the perfectly good, infinitely generous, compassionate, and kind creator. Back to chapter 3. Look at verse 19. John 3 again. Go back there. Look at verse 19. Just stole the... I'm not good at sermon titles, so I just stole it from this. And this is the judgment. Pause. Just in case you're still wondering, hey, you know, is this text really about judgment? Is is it correct that the Son came into the world to judge? Yeah, here it is. This is the judgment. The Son has come. The light has come. This is the judgment. And the people loved God the darkness, rather than the light, because their works were evil. And we've already seen this. Look back at chapter 1. Look at verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. This is Jesus, the Word, the true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not Receive him. See, that verse, that's what's wrong with the world. It's all the question, well, what's wrong with the world? You know, it's, it's poverty, it's racism, it's injustice, it's environmental disaster. All these things are not good things. What's wrong with the world? That's what's wrong with the world. This is the great problem with the world. It does not know its own creator. It does not know its savior. It has rejected its life. And there is nothing more revealing about the true nature of this world than its response to the coming of its creator. Want to know what the world is like? Look at how it responds to the coming of its maker. The light has come. Light is life. Light is is warmth and comfort and, and safety and security. The people loved the darkness rather than the light. Do you see the utter insanity of it all? Do you see maybe a little bit more why the world is condemned already? This is what everyone has done to God, the creator, the compassionate creator, the God of Isaiah 55. Right? Were you, I've used this before, but were you to know of a, maybe a single mother uh, who gave up everything for the good of her child, who worked multiple jobs, who spent nothing on herself and everything on her son went without so that he could have everything, saved up every penny to make sure her son had the best food, the best books, received the best education, who was some way able to be hardworking, providing mother, but also present, compassionate, and kind mother at the same time, just pouring herself out in love and concern for her son, also then saving up enough to give her son a massive inheritance when he turns 18. He's set for life. He's been completely cared for, provided for, and loved. His mother has sacrificed herself completely for him. And then on his 18th birthday, he turns to her and says, I don't love you. I hate you. I'll take the money, but I never want to see you again. We'd be furious. What a jerk. How can he do that to her? How can he respond to her years of perfect love and provision in that way? 
we would immediately pass judgment on that kid. Scripture says we are that son. That is exactly, but so much worse, exactly what we have done to the father of Isaiah 55. And he is right to pass judgment on us. Because there's nothing more evil than the rejection of the one who is most good. There's nothing more evil than the rejection of the highest good. The world is condemned already. This is the judgment. This is justice. Our culture is currently obsessed with the concept of justice, as it defines justice. The problem is our culture's concept of justice, social justice, is not the same as God's concept of justice, biblical justice. And the church especially needs to be careful to understand this distinction. And it is failing to do so in many places. But we should be very, very careful in our cry for ultimate, perfect justice. Thomas Watson, in his wonderful body of divinity, in his chapter on God's justice, he applies every doctrine at the end masterfully. And one of his applications for the doctrine of God's justice is this. He writes, if God be just... There will be a day of judgment. There is a day coming when God will set things right. He will do every man justice. He will crown the righteous. He will condemn the wicked. If God be a just God, he will take vengeance. God has given man a law to live by and they break it. There must be a day for the execution of offenders. At the last day, God's sword shall be drawn out against offenders. Then his justice shall be revealed before all the worlds. Acts 17.31, God will judge in righteousness. The wicked shall drink a sea of wrath, but not sip one drop of injustice. At that day shall all mouths be stopped, and God's justice shall be fully vindicated um, from all the cavils, kind of the worthless objections, and, and clamors of unjust men. You see, God will judge. There will be judgment. Anthony read this for us at the beginning. Psalm 96. I didn't even think of Psalm 96. He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And John 3.16 and the following is actually all about that judgment. And that then means that there is nothing more important than knowing the standard of that judgment. Point number three. The basis, the standard, the basis of God's judgment is belief. Let's get to our second key word in this section. Go back to verse 18. Let's read it again. Here's the basis. Whoever believes in him is not condemned or judged, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now, I think the the whosoever and the whoever, we just need to drop those words from our John 3 conversation. Remember, those aren't in the text. Literally, that text in the Greek says, the one who is believing. It's the Greek participle. Uh, Greek teachers will sometimes tell you that if you can master the participle, you can master Greek. um, Because the participle is so important to Greek. So I'm not an expert on this. Um, But it technically says, like, the one who is believing in him. Um, You know, a participle is like a, a... a verb with the ing that's serving as an adjective or a noun or, or a pronoun. It could just translate it as uh, believers in him are not condemned. Right? It could just be a substantive noun. Or the one who is believing is not condemned or judged, but the one who is not believing or the unbeliever is condemned already. The text tells us why. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you see there in that verse, belief is the basis. 
That makes belief everything. Remember, this is the key verb in John, pastuo. This is the point of the book, 2031. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Logical corollary, believing, life in his name, well, it's implied and assumed. Not believing means death. So belief is the basis. And belief, remember, faith are the same things. Words do not mean different things. They're the exact same in Scripture. Faith is belief. To believe is to have faith. And I want you to see what John has just done. I don't want you to miss. John 3 is kind of like Soteriology 101. John 3 is like one of the clearest places where Jesus teaches us about the doctrine of salvation. How does this happen? Jesus is teaching us. Track what's going on here. Go back at 316. There's the contrast between perish or eternal life or between life and death. That's like the culmination and the explanation of all that Jesus has been teaching in verses 1 through 15. He says to Nicodemus twice, in 3 and 7, you must be born again. Remember, birth is about life. Birth begets life. So if you need birth, then that must mean that you are dead. Right? So Jesus, in teaching about our need for rebirth, or birth from above, is teaching about our need for spiritual life. Which also then means that we are spiritually dead right so you have a problem you are dead ephesians 2 1 you are dead in your trespasses and sins 3 14 that's why jesus came to be lifted up to die verse 15 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life and then john 3 16 says the same thing not die eternal life you had a death problem jesus came to solve that death problem but that wasn't your only problem look at how did you catch this look at how the language shifts From verse 16 to 17 and 18. Look at what John has done. He's changed the language. It's gone from death and life to condemned already and not condemned. Or to judge or already or not judged. See, we've gone from life language to legal language. Because why were you dead? Trespasses and sins. What is a sin? Any transgression of God's law. So, not only does your sin make you dead, it makes you guilty. And look at the text. Look at how guilty sin makes you. Look at how strongly this text describes those who are condemned already. We just read 3.16 and we read nothing else. And we don't pay attention to these hugely important verses that follow. We've already tried to draw out the seriousness of our sin by looking at it in light of Isaiah 55. But look at the text and how it's described for us here. Here's what we're trying to answer. Why condemned already? Why are these people judged? End of 18. Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Who is God? The God of Isaiah 55, the kind and compassionate and generous God of love. They have not believed him. They have not received him. But not only that. Look at verse 19. The light, as Jesus, by the way, the light, Jesus, has come into the world, but they loved darkness rather than Jesus. Why? The text tells us. Because their works were evil. Repeat it again. In verse 19, they do wicked things. And their works are evil, and they do evil things. Jesus tells us out of the abundance of the heart, right? We only do that which is in our heart. So they do evil and wicked things because they are evil. And remember Thomas Watson above, God is just. Therefore, he will give everyone their due. He will repay wrongdoers. He will punish evil. This is what justice demands. We all want evildoers punished. We all want wrongs made right. We all just don't want to admit that 
we are the evildoers, that we are the committers of the wrong. And what is that wrong fundamentally at its most basic? Look at verse 20. This is it right here. Whoever does wicked hates the light. We've already established who the light is. The light is Jesus. So here's why they're condemned already. They hate the Son. Hate Jesus Christ himself. This dovetails really nicely with what Steve was teaching us earlier. Right? It's, it's the Son is everything. Thus, the rejection of the Son is everything. So they are condemned already, the text tells us, because they do not believe in the Son, because they love darkness instead of the Son, because they are evil and do evil, and because they hate the Son. And this is the judgment. This is why there is judgment. How do we expect the infinitely excellent and good God of Isaiah 55 to respond to this response to that? How do we expect the infinitely holy and just God to respond to this wickedness and this evil and this hatred and rejection of his son? Judgment. That's the only logical response. We tend to think something like murder is the great sin or adultery. Today it would be racism. All bad things. But Matthew Henry writes this. Unbelief may truly be called the great damning sin. Unbelief is the great damning sin because it refuses to believe the Son. And thus it refuses to receive the Son. And thus it chooses to reject the Son. And thus it chooses to receive judgment. And it's all on the basis of this faith. All on the basis of what you choose to do with the Son. And so why is this the basis why, why faith? Why is this the means through which God chose to work? Why is this the main verb of the Gospel of John? Well, it's because faith is the only way that this could work. Why? Because of sin. We've already seen because we were already dead. Dead doesn't do sin. Because as we've already seen, we were already guilty. The guilty, already guilty, cannot make themselves innocent. That means that works won't work. They cannot work. We cannot work ourselves into God's favor. We cannot work ourselves into life because dead can't work. We cannot work ourselves into innocence because condemned already. That means no hope in ourselves. This is why Paul is so intense in in Galatians. This is why Paul is so hot when anyone starts to add to the gospel or to take away from the gospel. Because Paul understands. Paul, this uh, more righteous than everyone else, understands there's only hope in righteousness by grace through faith in Christ. This is why he's so hot on anything that kind of cuts at the core of the wonderful good news. There's no hope in us. That means then necessarily that the only hope must be outside of ourselves. If it cannot be us, if there's any hope, it must be someone else. And that's what John 3.16 so beautifully reveals. If it's not us, if it's not man... The only other option is that it's God himself. It must be the giving of God himself in the sending of his son. And this is why faith is so important. Faith is not the work that we do, as many of us were kind of basically implicitly taught. It's not the the rope that's there. God's done that part. And you've got to reach out and grab it and add your part. That makes faith a work. No, faith is not the thing that we add to what God has done to complete the work. No, faith is not a work at all. It's a rest. Faith, faith is simply often described as it's an empty, open hand. 
All faith does is receive. It, it contributes nothing. It receives everything. And yet this is chapter 1, verse 12. We read 9 through 11. After the world did not know him, after his own people did not receive him, verse 12. But who all who did receive him. What does that mean? Who believed in his name. See that? To believe is to receive. What did he do? He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13. Again, here's, here's chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Verse, chapter 1, verse 15. Here's the new birth. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah, that's what verse 21 says as well. Look at back to chapter 3, verse 21. I realized I was going back through my sermon late yesterday and I realized I skipped verse 21. So you get one paragraph about verse 21. Look at what it says. Does the one who does what is true or practices the truth or lives in light of the truth comes to the light, comes to Jesus, so that his works may be exposed? What does that mean? So, so it may be seen that he is really, really good. Um, is this sneakily teaching salvation by works all of a sudden? No. Uh, so that it can be seen, his works can be seen, so that everything can be seen to have been carried out in God. Again, chapter 1, verse 13. Not us, but God. Not works, but grace. It's all him. The guilt is all us. The fault is all ours. The gift is all God. Right? The grace is all him. God does the work in Christ. We receive the result by faith. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, is not judged. So guess what? You know what this means? What does this mean? Theme. Let's tie it all together. There actually is a judgment-free zone. Romans 8.1. Christian, one of the most important verses for your experience of the Christian life. If you have not memorized that verse yet, do it today. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. And again, it's the same word as our text with a prefix attached to it. There is therefore now no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Christ is the judgment-free zone. That's it. Christ is the only judgment-free zone. And why is that? 316, connected to 314, connected to 129. It is because of why Christ has come and what Christ has done. Which was what? He was condemned. See, Christ is the only judgment-free zone because he was judged already. He was condemned already. We just sang it. I am forgiven because you were forsaken. See that? And since God is just, there can be no double jeopardy. Here's why it's impossible for anyone for whom Christ died to go to hell. It doesn't make any sense. No, God cannot require double payment for sin. He, Christ has paid the penalty. He has been judged. There is therefore now no more judgment. Christian, do you live in light of this glorious, life-changing reality? Do you realize how good and gracious our God is? I have committed a countless Number of sins. Again, countless to me. Not countless to him. He knows every single one of them. I have rejected the God of Isaiah 55. I spurned him and his compassionate grace again and again and again. And yet, John 3.16. And yet, 
He still sent his son. He gave him as an expression of his love for me to take all of that sin, to take on all of that sin, and to take away all of that sin. For him to be condemned so that I could be forgiven. For him to die so that I could live. And you know what happened even after that? I still wrestle and struggle with sin. Every time I do, I'm denying the goodness and grace of the God of Isaiah 55. And yet, Romans 8.1. And yet, no condemnation. Because Christ was already condemned even for those sins. Psalm 103 verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's impossible. He would be unjust if that's what he did. How is that possible? Because he's already dealt with Christ according to our sins. No judgment for me. Because full judgment already for Christ. And so you know what that does? The increasing realization of that grace of God does, it makes me want to know him better. It makes me want to love and delight in him and and obey him and, and follow him. It's his unlimited grace that keeps drawing me back to him and that keeps driving me on, driving me closer to him. Christian, you must learn to keep the glorious truth of Romans 8.1 before you always. No condemnation. Judgment-free zone because of Christ. You are alive. You have been forgiven. You have been declared righteous. And nothing can change that. Nothing, Romans 8, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that also then means... That outside of Christ, there is only a judgment-full zone. That's the only option. There is only death and condemnation. The corollary of Romans 8.1 for the unbeliever would be, there is therefore already and only condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Because outside of Jesus, apart from the faith that connects us to and receives the Jesus who is condemned in the place of sinners, there can only be condemnation. Because of how this section describes unbelievers not coming to Christ, not believing in him, evil, hating him. Again, this is just what the text says. Judgment can be the only result, the only justice for those who hate the Christ who is life. I mean, that's what everyone else is and has done. Scripture is just so clear on this again and again and again. The Bible is boldly binary, right? And binary is beautiful. John speaks in starkly binary terms. It's death or life. It's darkness or light. It's unbelief or faith. It's Jesus or Satan. And so in this text, which we say is all about the love of God, and again, it is, all of this is an expression of God's love for his glory and for his people. Um, Love judges that which is evil and that which is wicked, and we should want love to do that. It is not loving to not judge and do something about evil and wickedness. Uh, This text, then, that is all about the love of God, must also then be all about the judgment of God for all who reject him and reject his love, and reject him and his son. And so this text reveals to us very clearly what the rest of Scripture reveals. There are only two peoples. That's it. All the identity and all the obsession and all the different breaking down and the intersections and all of these things, none of that matters. There are two types of people. Spend lots of time in Psalm chapter 1. Two options. You are either the righteous by the grace of God through faith in Christ or the wicked. 
And verse 5 of Psalm 1 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the difference, the distinction, the separation between these two groups is faith. It's only faith. Only what you have done with the Son. Have you received Him or have you rejected Him? For those who have received, for those who have believed, no judgment. Because He's been judged already. For those who have rejected, have not believed, the text tells us, judgment already. This is the judgment. And so there is only one judgment-free zone. And it is Jesus Christ. And again, we don't, we don't love anyone by kind of like shoving this under the rug. Like, oh, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, this judgment stuff. Maybe we should kind of leave that aside and let's be more loving and kind. But what a hateful thing to do, right? To believe that someone apart from Christ is going to die and go to hell and to be embarrassed about that and not want to tell them about that. This is it. Like, John 3.16 is so glorious because of the reality of 17 through 21. The love of God that saves sinners is so glorious because of the condemnation that we all deserve for our sin. And that is the lot for every single person that you will see or interact with in your day, in your week, and your entire life. It is heaven or hell. It is self or Christ. And self results in Satan and hell. How can we not talk about the judgment of God? Because scripture talks about it and tells us, but look at what he's done. Look at the offer. Look at Jesus Christ. The only judgment-free zone. God is love. And his love demands that there be justice. Which means that God will judge. And the basis of his judgment is his son. And what you have done uh, with that son. Have you believed? Have you received the son who is light and life? If you would bow with me, let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, please help us. We pray and ask now that your spirit would work in my heart, in the heart of everyone in this room, through the word that we have just read and heard. Father, I pray that it would be your word that would be central and that would be the focus. I pray that you would be revealing to us the reality of your judgment, uh, your justice. Pray that you would be revealing to us all the more clearly the beauty and the glory and the kindness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, your love that sends your Son. Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't come to help us a little bit. Pray that he didn't come to do part of the work or get us part of the way and hope that we figured it out. Father, my only hope is that he has done all of it, that he has paid it all, and thus all to him I owe. My only hope is that it is finished on that cross and that there is nothing left for me to do. And we thank you that that's what your word teaches. We thank you that Jesus has accomplished that for his people. Father, while we were yet enemies, you sent your son to die for us. Father, that should delight us. That should give us such joy and such peace and fulfillment. That should be our identity, Lord. And so we pray that you would encourage us with the word. But Father, I pray that we would see the stark reality also contained in this word, that outside of Christ, that there is only judgment. There is no middle ground. 
There is no things are okay and kind of pretty good for some and bad for others. No, it's outside of Christ. It's judgment. Because it is only Christ that takes away sin. So, Father, help us to believe that. Help us to believe that without Christ, everyone goes to hell. And then help us to live accordingly. Father, as we also conclude a Sunday school series on evangelism, Father, we need you to make us an evangelistically minded people. Father, we need you to fix that within us as a mindset and and as a lifestyle um, that you work through your church and that you work through the preaching and then the speaking of your word. Father, that is how you save sinners from your judgment, by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would be captured and captivated by that gospel. I pray that you would forgive us for our apathy and our concern um, for our own time and for our own acceptability before the world. Father, I pray that you would set all of those aside. I pray that, Paul, that we would happily be fools before the world if it meant that we got to tell more and more people about Jesus. So, Father, help that start with me and, and with Mike and uh, the leaders. And uh, Father, I pray that we would all be um, compelled to speak of the good news of the life that is found only in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the gift of congregational worship and singing and, and your word. Father, do your work now. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.